The last time I was translated when I was speaking, I was in uh, a field in Mozambique where the church met underneath a tree. And the last time I can remember being recorded when I was speaking, I was in a congregation with a nice building with, with several hundred people. And so I don't know what to think when both are happening at once. Think for a few minutes with me, if you would, this afternoon about times when we disappoint God. We obviously disappoint God when we sin. And we not only disappoint God, but we disappoint others. Sin is embarrassing, isn't it? Uh, Perhaps more accurately, the uh, exposure of sin is embarrassing. Especially when our sins are exposed or become known to those of the household of faith. And it creates quite a dilemma for us as Christians, when inevitably we do wrong, to uh, deal correctly with that having disappointed God and others. But we're not alone in this. There are those who have gone before us who have no doubt faced disappoint, disappointing others just as strongly as we ever have. Consider two examples. Consider Paul, for example. Paul actively persecuted Christians. Granted, that was before he was converted to Christ. But nonetheless, we see consistently in his epistles that this troubled him. And it wasn't as though he was, um, he was, he was always acting with a clean conscience, but he had a clear remembrance of who he had been and what he had done. And that remembrance had an impact on the way that he lived. And consider David in the Old Testament, who was, after all, a man after God's own heart. A man who professed to be not only the physical leader of the nation, but the spiritual leader of the nation. He was the writer of dozens of our psalms. And yet he engaged in an illicit sexual relationship. And more than that, the cover-up of that relationship, during which he mercilessly killed one of his 30 mighty men. And he acted as though nothing had happened at all. And so sorrow or guilt, we might say, are natural reactions and feelings to having committed wrong. And to some degree, we, we cannot overcome or we cannot avoid, I should say, these feelings. And I suggest that even if we could, we should not try to avoid them. God can use sorrow. He can use our guilt to bring about change in our lives. In 2 Corinthians 7, I think we'll spend all of our time uh, in the books of Corinthians this afternoon. In the passage that Jonathan read for us, in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 8 through 10, we learn about two kinds of sorrow. We learn about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And the key distinction between the two kinds of sorrow is that one leads to repentance or to change, and the other produces death. Change is difficult, isn't it? Uh, Anyone who has tried to make a meaningful change to their habits knows this. Even fairly small changes seem to be difficult for us. Think about our eating habits, for example. If you've always eaten ice cream, when you've gotten up in the morning, it's hard to change that habit. When I went off to college, I tried to change my mannerisms to not be like my father, and I could not do it. Change is difficult, and change can be uncomfortable. Change often feels unnatural to us, and the more deeply ingrained the habit has become, the more difficult we can expect 
the change to be. And so if the course of your life has consistently been pursuing righteousness and you falter for a moment in sin, it stands to reason that you may be able to get back up relatively quickly. But if your habit or your pattern of life has been consistently pursuing sin, you can expect a lot of pain to change. Alcohol, the alcoholic who's accustomed to drinking socially, drinking when he's emotional, drinking in celebration, drinking in defeat, who is familiar with the way to the bar and familiar with the way to the liquor store, whose friends all are familiar with alcohol, it will feel very strange to avoid all such things. And yet, he recognizes that if he's going to change, he's going to have to divorce those habits. And that's going to feel uncomfortable and unnatural and awkward. It will invite uncomfortable questions from others who know us. And the longer we've persisted in the bad habit, the greater the challenge in overcoming it. Repentance is never promised to be easy. Change will require us to walk differently, to think differently, and to retrain our minds and our hearts toward righteousness. That all sounds bad, doesn't it? Most of us don't like change, myself included. I want to keep eating ice cream every morning. But when I consider the alternative, we should all be willing to face the difficulty. Because there are only two choices to sorrow that Paul describes. It's either godly sorrow that produces repentance, or it's worldly sorrow that produces death. Spiritual death and emotional depravity. Worldly sorrow is self-seeking, where we wallow in our sin and in our guilt. Worldly sorrow looks for a quick fix. We try and nullify the pain and the guilt, as though there were such a thing as Novocaine for the heart or the soul. Worldly sorrow just wants everything to get back to normal, doesn't it? Even if normal isn't righteousness. It's different than having the courage to make lasting change. You might consider David in his cover-up of his sin. David thought he had just taken care of that and swept it under the rug. But that wasn't repentance. That wasn't change on his part. That change didn't come until Nathan, the prophet, approached him and made him face his guilt. Worldly sorrow is more concerned about self and about self's image and less concerned about the pain that he has caused others and the Lord. Worldly sorrow is despicable, distasteful, and unproductive. And it leads to death. Worldly sorrow is exactly what Satan wants you to feel. He tells us that we should feel guilty. That it's natural to feel hurt personally. He tells us that there are quick fixes to solve problems. He tells us that change ain't really that hard. We would do well to have a healthy degree of resentment towards Satan. Self-pity is not the only way. Self-pity is not effective in this life, and certainly not the eternal one. Our adversary wants us to be consumed and destroyed by our painful memories. Will you let him have his way? But here's something very important about godly sorrow. It requires that you believe that you can actually change. In 1 Corinthians 10, in verse 13, Paul tells us that no temptation has overtaken us such as what is common to man and that God will provide the way of escape. And so when you face your own sin, you'll have to ask yourself honestly in your own heart the question, 
Do you really believe that you can actually change? Because if you don't believe that you can change, all is lost. Now, let's be careful. It's not in us alone that can't change. It's in what God allows us to be. And Paul recognized in this verse, it was only by the grace of God that he was uh, able uh, to overcome temptation. And so, do you believe an alcoholic can actually change? They uh, tell the story about the man who was traveling in Africa. And he uh, came upon a, a pack of elephants uh, who had a small rope tied around uh, their, their leg, their front leg, that were tied to a group of trees. And uh, the man asked the trainer why it was the elephants didn't run away. Because the small rope stood no chance against the strength and the might of these elephants. And the trainer indicated that when the elephants were just young, is when they began to tie the rope, the small rope, around their feet. And when they were young, they were bound by that rope. And by the time they got old, they ceased trying to escape. Satan wants us to believe that we are bound to sin. He wants us to believe that we cannot break free. That's a lie. God tells us that we can escape. Nothing is too powerful for God to overcome in your life. In Psalm 51, David prayed that God created him a clean heart. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul confesses that by the grace of God, I am what I am. It is not in us, but in God that can create change. And so before you can be effective in repenting, you must believe that God can create something new in you. He is capable. There is a role that uh, others play in your repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, and in verse 6 beginning, we read, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul is apparently speaking up about the, the, uh, the man from 1 Corinthians 5, who had taken his uh, father's wife. And apparently, he had repented. He had changed. But the Corinthians were still holding him at arm's length. And God tells the Corinthians, reaffirm your love for him. Sincere repentance should be met with acceptance and embrace. We all have a responsibility to help the alcoholic to change. And sometimes we don't let other people change, do we? They say that in-laws judge harshly and rarely forget a wrong done. And so long after the spouse has forgiven, the in-laws, the in-laws remind, this should not be the way we are with our brethren. If we all believe that God is capable of creating change, that he is capable of creating change in our brother. God, thankfully, forgives. And he willingly acts as though he's forgotten. He blots out our sin as though it never existed. And we would do well to follow in his footsteps. Finally, I'd suggest that godly sorrow, when it has its full and painful effect, can be a very positive thing in your life. It can make you stronger. It can make you better positioned to serve the Lord. 
believe it or not, uh, past failures can play a positive role in our lives. There are some benefits of godly sorrow that are rarely replicated in any other way. Empathy, for example. The ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Something you can only gain having walked the same path. When we recognize our sin and we repent, we have an opportunity to experience the forgiveness of God firsthand. And we would never sin just to experience these things. May it never be, Paul would say. But these are benefits that are a byproduct of dealing with sin correctly. At times, we even get to experience the forgiveness of others and their reacceptance that reaffirms their love for us. And there are times when we don't get to experience that reacceptance, when someone who means a great deal to us is unwilling to forgive us. And it causes us all the more to appreciate the forgiveness of God. We are made humbler once we repent. Having gone through the embarrassment of disappointing God and others, I certainly believe Paul and David both were, having experienced what they did. Someone once said, Out of every disappointment there is a treasure. Satan whispers, all is lost. God says, much can be gained.